Hello. In this episode of Airs for Architecture, Ed Parham, Director of Design and Innovation at Space Syntax, talks about their work on city making, the Space Syntax methodology, and the possibilities of data driven architecture and design. Underneath it, there's a built environment, and that makes a behaviour possible or not. And that's what these people are complaining about in the stories that are making it into the mainstream press, that they live somewhere that's completely car dependent. The really important thing is that we can be really precise about explaining the characteristics of the built environment that make it car dependent or not. So then the next way of thinking it through is that if you can start to see that there's a a set of spatial characteristics that affect daily activities and longer term outcomes. Then the question is really about how you, it's it's almost what you do with that spatial intelligence. Aerial Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of Aerial Architecture. I'm talking today to Ed Parham. Um, Ed, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks, Ambrose. I'm an architect. Um, I work for a company called Space Syntax. I've worked there for 15 years. And um, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to talk about some of the issues that we've we've kind of encountered through that time. Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's a very short introduction. No, no, no frills. I uh, And you're based in London and Space Syntax's work is based... Well, yeah, I can I can expand on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, why don't we? I mean, so, I mean, why don't like? So, what's your? Tr- I guess what I'm mm. interested in here is is the way that you come to be in space syntax. But perhaps if we understand what space syntax is first, then your journey into it as an architect becomes slightly more. Um, it's an it's an unusual pathway because it's an unusual practice, a mode of spatial design. So, okay, so the, the, the space syntax is a set of techniques for consistently describing and analyzing relationships between space. And that can mean internal spaces in buildings, but it can also mean spaces in a bigger scale. Um, so across a city, across a town, even a region. And um, space syntax has a particular approach, which is about modeling and analyzing these networks of space. And the purpose of this is so that you can start to consistently understand the the sorts of things that designers um, affect. So the the spatial relationships, the purpose of space syntax is to to better understand how you can shape those relationships and how they relate to daily activities and long-term outcomes. Um, so the, the some of the, the background to Space Syntax was that it was started at University College London, started in the Bartlett, and it was partly a response to a lot of design that was meant to be cutting edge that happened post-war, but which wasn't working the way that people expected. And it was difficult for people to explain why it didn't work. People had different ideas around whether it was uh, that people don't like living in buildings unless if they're made of a certain material or they don't like living in a certain uh, building if it has a particular spatial form of a pitched roof or a flat roof or things like this. And Bill Hillier, who was the professor there at the time, started to really question this and ask in a much more critical way, what are the, what is the, is there a scientific way of being able to link the design of these places to what's actually happening? And the, the story that I've heard which I don't know if it's completely true, but the story I heard was that he was visiting a lot of places 
to to try and see them, understand what was happening. And the same thing kept happening. And that was that when he walked around the corner of a building, he would bump into somebody face to face and neither person would know the other was around the corner. And so Bill started to think there's something about the way that you can see through space, the way that spaces fit together and the way that you move through them. And so what he started to do was actually to map these spatial networks, so all the places that you could actually see through and walk through, to translate that into a graph and to analyse that graph. And so that would mean turning every space into, without being too technical, turning every space into a node in a graph. This this kind of analysis gets used a lot now for things like um, social network analysis, to see how many people you're connected to and how many steps away you are from everybody. And Bill was really using this to look at how well connected spaces were. And so there was a whole series of things that came out of that research, which was around things like better connected spaces being the ones that people naturally move through more easily, starting to see a whole series of relationships that then spun off of where people were and where they weren't. And in towns and cities, often it means that places like high streets are the the better connected spaces and you end up passing through them without really thinking about how or why you got there. Mm-hmm. You might be going somewhere else, but it happens to be the most convenient route. And then you start to see a whole series of spin-off kind of relationships. So if you're going to open a shop, you need footfall. You need people to walk past. And if you have the shop in the wrong place, you don't have enough footfall and it will probably go out of business. There's other other relationships happen as well. So certain types of um, antisocial behavior or crime. If you're climbing through somebody's window, you don't want to be interrupted by someone who happens to be walking past. And so certain types of crime happen in less well-connected spaces or with very particular spatial characteristics. So that's a probably quite a long introduction about space syntax. No, it's a really it's a really good one. What do you mean by connect? So <clears throat> your example, Hillier's, uh, Bill Hillier's example of not being able to see people, essentially, but that also speaks about not being able to hear people. So it's like a multi-sensory lack of connections. And what space syntax does is about unpacking a whole range of connectivities be that informational physical emotional or is it or is it does it because that would get really complicated so i'm uh, assuming that there's boundaries to what you're talking about yeah and i and i think it's um i mean it's interesting talking about the the way the sound moves around Mm. but it's it's the initial piece is is thinking about what are the spaces you can see and move through? So it's not thinking about things like sound or any of those other layers. It's just mm-hmm. to say, if I'm standing here, what can I see and what can I get to easily or or less easily, essentially? So that's <clears throat> at that scale, we're talking about quite small parts of the um, small parts of the city. You know, so we're talking if we're talking about pedestrians, we're talking about quite limited. Perspectives, but space syntax move beyond moved beyond that into much much larger. So how does so what does the how does the model develop? So from mm. sort of algorithm points on a graph, how does it develop and and so, and so it's using it's using this thing called um it's called a justified graph. So what that does is it starts to take um every space and it will start to link it to every other space it's directly connected to. And the when you're doing the graph analysis, you can you can measure characteristics such as how integrated you are, which is how many people, how many other spaces can you get to and how far away are they? How difficult are they to get to? Or you can measure something that's called uh, betweenness centrality, which tells you if you're connecting everywhere to everywhere, which are the which 
are the spaces which are used most often to connect everywhere to everywhere. So it's like if I wanted to speak to somebody, all of these things about your however many steps from Kevin Bacon, it's, it's a way of kind of thinking about stuff. Um, it started on a smaller scale. It started on things like uh, big housing estates and new towns. And then through looking at that, they started to expand the the scale that they were looking to think about whole cities. Mm. And one of the interesting bits, I think, is that the the, the graph analysis, you can apply at different scales. Mm. So you could say, if I'm only going to move for um, five minutes or 400 meters, whatever you want your, your boundary to be, which are the spaces which are most useful, which mm. are the ones that are easiest to get into in, in terms of the fewest turns, the ones that are easiest to see into. Um, and you can also run the same analysis at a much bigger scale. And that's where it starts to transfer to the scale of the city. And that's what becomes really important. So if you take a city like London, you can start, if you were to analyze how well connected all the streets are at the scale of the whole city, in the, the methodologies have developed and the technologies developed, but in the old days, which is late eighties, early kind of nineties, the, the comparison was that I think you were never more than something like six steps from Oxford Street. So Oxford Street is the, sp the space in London which is closest to everybody. Mm -hmm. And one of the really important bits of space syntax was this idea of how you measure how easy or difficult it is to get into a space. And it wasn't about using the distance. It was about using the number of turns mm. because the number of turns that you went through related to how visible things were and how spaces were, were intervisible from each other. So um, Oxford Street is very easy to get to from everywhere in topological terms. Other spaces are much, much more difficult. So the thing that becomes really interesting is when you start to look at how these patterns of accessibility or integration work at different scales. And you might, I think if you look at most of the kind of local high streets, a lot of them are very accessible to the wider city and they have this overlap of being very accessible locally as well. And what that tends to mean is that you have people passing through high streets who are on their way to somewhere else. They might be moving across the whole city and they happen to go through that street because it's the best connected and it's the easiest one to follow. And those people on that street are also mixing with the people who live locally who happen to be using that street because it's the shortcut to walk for five minutes to school or something like that. And what then is really interesting is... Um, the opportunities that this mixing of um, people allows to happen. Mm -hmm. And again, if you apply the way of kind of think, if you were thinking of it in, I guess, kind of commercial terms or retail terms, if you have a little local high street that's not connected to the wider city, any of those businesses can only be supported by the people who live within the distance that they can easily get to it. Mm -hmm. If you have those businesses can be supported by the local community, but there's also people from bigger area passing through that's increasing the number of people that's increasing the potential customers and it's providing you with a different a different scale or different type of opportunity mm. so the the advantages of the space syntax method are that it <clears throat> can inform it's not just an analytical tool is it? it's not just a way of describing reality but it's a way of kind of then taking that information about connections and using it to plan both uh the spatial plan infrastructural plan but also commercial planning and you know um development planning perhaps yeah yeah i'd say there's there's two elements to it one is to be able to 
uh, yeah, carry out that kind of analysis to explain how things fit together. You can also, you can use the same techniques to test a future scenario. So you can drop in a master plan. You could put in the new spatial connections that you have, rerun the analysis, see what patterns of connectivity that gets you, and then think about what that means. But the bit that we um, haven't really talked about, it's been quite kind of technical, but the the other part of it is the this idea that Bill talks about, which is the idea that societies shape spatial relationships in a way that's particular to them. And that then the way that these um, spaces are um, shaped has a feedback and it impacts back on society. And so what becomes really interesting is using things like space syntax to compare cities in different parts of the world. And you tend to see really interesting things. So there are places, one of the things that you can start to do is to see in a lot of cities around the world, you will find this this network of really well-connected streets across the whole city. And that will tend to be the places that lots of people will mix and that there'll be businesses and there'll be kind of commercial things happening. And the bit that becomes really interesting is what what happens to the kind of the rest of the city, the background. Mm -hmm. And in some cities, that background is shaped very differently to others. And in some places, and, and this background tends to be the more residential, quieter places. And so you get this almost this distinction between spaces which are clearly more public to, to allow you to come into contact with people that you don't already know. But those kind of background, more residential streets can be the places which are um, allow people to be kind of more private or maybe um, um, follow... I don't know. Maybe they're maybe they're more socially private, or they're they're, they're slightly different kind of spaces, and that's yeah. the interesting bit is how that changes in cities around the world. Yeah, and and so because I was thinking as you were talking about, say, for example, Oxford Road, where you've got this one place which is, you know, a city of size of London that it only has one place that has this kind of specific interconnectivity. Is the is the is that seen as being a good thing? Or is the ideal for a city to have numerous places which have high levels of interconnectivity dispersed amongst places with a different form? Is that a better model? Because so, go on. Yeah. So um, it's really interesting that I think you get lots of cities work across lots of different scales. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. centres work across different scales as well. Right. And um there's lots of stuff that kind of feeds into this which is or I think is quite interesting but um one is that one of the key things that space syntax can start to do is if you change the scale of analysis that you're looking at you can start to pick up a really local center that might just be a couple of shops on a corner you can pick up at a bigger scale hold of Oxford Street yeah and what becomes really interesting is this way that these centers kind of merge together and there's a couple of ideas which are um um, maybe not challenging, but which are kind of different to how people typically think about things. And one is that centres tend to be linear and they tend to operate along streets. They tend to be long lines rather than kind of convex blobs on a plan. And that tends to be basically because of how people move through space. And so one of the things that comes out from space syntax is that you have this um, centres are linear, but you also get this scale of almost continuously connected centres at different scales. And so um bill used to have a phrase that was about pervasive centrality so there's this characteristic of centrality pervades the whole grid 
and it works at different scales in different places and you see that reflected in the type of activities that happen um the other thing i was going to talk about was when you start to think about um different structures and hierarchies of centers and relationships to grids it's really interesting if you compare say more if you think of kind of British or European grids tend to be more organic and have developed over time. And you look at the structures that you get in those and you compare them to American cities and American cities being very gridded. Um, what starts to happen if you look at, if you look really, um, if you start to really study the the values in the, in the analysis, you tend to see in places like London that you will have a much more widely defined hierarchy of values so you have something like oxford street there might be 10 streets which are all very very well connected but the average level of connectivity might be quite low if you look at somewhere like new york the maximum value will be lower than the maximum value in london but the average will be higher okay and so so that starts to give some really interesting ideas about your access to opportunities maybe in American cities might be different to UK cities mm -hmm. because you're only ever a few steps from lots of other people. Mm. Whereas in the more organic cities, you can be much, much deeper from those things which are happening. And there's a whole load of questions in there, which is, are those grids shaped in American cities? Are they intentionally doing that? Or is that just something that has emerged and has happened? Um, there's, there's, I mean, this is probably something that we might talk about later, which is this whole question about causation and correlation and linking what's actually happening to outcomes and and what can you really do as planners and designers and architects well it's fascinating you mentioned architects so we're going to go back to your biography you were uh you were because what you're describing i get it it's architecture because it's to do with the built environment but it's not architecture as most folk understand it and it's certainly not architecture as most um, students are educated in it so how did you get to it and how like what has been the not only your journey but like in terms of your thought processes because I put I assume if you were an architect before you did kind of architecture like architects do which is not like this yeah 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 so I am an architect and I have got part three I'm a, <laughs> I'm a ARB uh, registered um, <laughs> Um, so I am, uh, as I would say, a proper architect. And there's a lot of kind of people in software who also call themselves architects. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely not architecture. That's, that's, that's something else again. But um, yeah, so I am an architect. I worked in a big practice, but I think um, I've always worked on quite big scale projects. So I would have, I would have previously been involved in, um, this is early 2000s. 2003, four, was involved in kind of big regeneration master plans for town centres. And so I've always worked this on was with whom? projects. This was uh, BDP. Okay. Um, so that was when I first started. And then after, I think I was there maybe two, three years, and a friend of mine sent me an advert to something that was in the AJ at the time. And because I didn't know anything about space syntax, I didn't go through the Bartlett. I wasn't aware of what space syntax was. I think it was one of the only times that the company's advertised in the AJ. One of my friends saw the advert and passed it on to me. And at that time, space syntax weren't looking for people that had the typical space syntax background that hadn't been through this, the syntax course. 
and and were looking for a, a, to go through that route. They wanted people that had a different sort of experience and had worked in practice on on kind of real projects in a slightly different way. Um, so that was in 2006, I think I started. And the first project I had was to think about how to do a city from scratch for 100,000 people. And that was really Which interesting. Which was where? This, this was in the Middle East. And I think before I started at the company, I did, I think the company sent me a couple of books to read before I started. And I did, I started in October and I had a couple of weeks off in between my last job and starting. And so I did the first two or three weeks of the space syntax course at UCR just to get an introduction. And that was really, really interesting. And that was suddenly, um, suddenly seeing a different way of thinking about things and being able to explain things and almost kind of being aware in the back of your mind that things happen for for some kind of reason, but not exactly knowing the logic behind it. And then suddenly being able to see this thing and thinking, okay, so that because of the way people move, there's this hierarchy that is this structure is underneath everything. You just can't see it. And that's having a huge impact on emergent effects and what happens day to day. So that was um, 2006. And then I've worked on generally, I would say, big projects. We do in the company work on building scale projects. And there's a whole um, whole different set of tools for looking at patterns of visibility within buildings. Mm-hmm. So there's been some really interesting building projects I've worked on. Uh, so things like the the Bloomberg headquarters in the city. Um, and that was really interesting because their brief was how do you design an office that creates the maximum potential for interaction between people? And so that went from the shape of the footprint, the, the, the floor plate, to where you put the lifts, to the shape of the staircase, to how people come in in the morning. And how could you make it as easy as possible for people to bump into each other and then share information? And people starting to realise that the way that people speak to each other and all of this informal communication and knowledge sharing that happens generates ideas and value and and that's what's really core to lots of businesses Mm. um so i've worked on a couple of buildings but not very many i've really worked on big scale city projects and that that has been kind of a a lot in the middle east um looking at how cities are going to grow um some in china um kazakhstan um i worked on some of the i think some of the projects which have been most interesting are the ones which are um very specific cases so i spent probably four or five years working on unplanned settlements and slums and these places are really interesting because if you think of what's difficult about looking at cities in europe or the uk or the states is that they're partly the result of a planning system and someone has intentionally put in place a certain layout. And that is, it's always very difficult to unpick. Um, how would this place have, how would a completely organically grown city work if there was nothing else shaping it? The thing that's really, un- really interesting with the unplanned settlements is that they have grown in that way. They're completely, often they're completely illegal. They occupy land that they're not meant to. But the thing that is really interesting is that they've grown individually. Well, they've often the places that people live in have been built by those people and they've mm-hmm. been built at the scale of a person. Yeah. They've developed over time. 
And one of the things that you can really see happening is that a lot of them have their own internal local spatial structures. And that all of these ideas that were coming through Bill's research about how the pattern of visibility makes certain streets more easy to get into than others, how you get more people in those streets, how you get little businesses setting up, you can see that really, really clearly in unplanned settlements and slums. And that's not to say they obviously have a number of problems. And if you look at things like the, the UN definition of slums, there are issues around land ownership, access to utilities, services, poor quality buildings, all of those things need to be addressed. But often you find that these areas are actually, they can be some of the most livable parts of bigger cities. Mm -hmm. They can be walkable, mixed use, um, really um, strong local communities. And there's there's really interesting things that I learned through looking at unplanned settlements and slums that we then applied when we were looking at, um, say, a project. Every now and then they come up, projects to design cities from scratch for a huge number of people. And those sorts of projects tend to be competitions, but at least mm -hmm. you can start to apply the things that you've learned from how cities really work and really questioning, does this does this um, slum actually have a whole load of positive characteristics compared to the rest of the city, which has been planned around the car and has been delivered at a scale and a speed that means it hasn't got the characteristics in place that make it a, a very livable place? It sounds to me a little bit like, because I, I know a, a wee bit on... Uh, on informal settlements and I'm actually recording a podcast episode with a, a chap called Kim Dovey or Kim Dovey who's a, a specialist in informality in in Australia and he's written hugely about it over the years and has a huge research project on it now so I, I'm kind of really interested in it but one of the things that has always kind of struck me about it is they're essentially we do romanticize them and all of those things are true and all of those negative things uh, are, are also true about it. I'm sure one of the forces that's at play in informal settlements that no one really recognizes is peri-legal uh, legislation processes through gangsterism, for example, or nepotism. But anyway, I um, not peri-legal, illegal, um, or other legal perhaps, but but what I, they, they strike me as being very kind of medieval, organic. And when we look at medieval Italian hill towns or even parts of Britain that have retained certain qualities of that, we, 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 we do tend to love them and we tend to go on holiday to them and think about how marvellous they are. And Space Syntax's model to me seems to be trying to address a cr one of the crises of modern cities, which is that they are... Um, inorganic and um, sort of lacking amenability to kind of those things that that we used to have five hundred years ago. Is that, I mean, is that right? Is is this um, is this a, is this a cry? Is this the space syntax model designed in specific response to like rational city planning? I, no, I don't think it's not a particular response to those. It's not a um, a kind of reaction to those things. It's to understand how do the things that you're designing relate to people mm. and to what may or may not be likely to happen. I mean, you the mean, other you mean people as bodies, people as sensory beings? Yeah, yeah. Okay. If you think of Barcelona is the really good example. That's a really great city. Um that's where I think it becomes really interesting if you look at the way that Barcelona has the particular grid 
what's really, really, I think <laughs> Serda is really interesting if you look at the work that he did because he spent, it was almost 10 years, wasn't it, doing the plan for Barcelona for the extension. And I think three quarters of that was um, looking at the existing city and analysing it and thinking about what people did and how they did it and where it happened and what the problems were and these sorts of things. So he spent a long time learning from how places, how it worked before mm. doing the extension. And the thing that is really, the extension is actually really clever because if you look at it on one level, it just looks like the repeating grid that goes on forever. But if you look really carefully, you have the the kind of older Barry Gothic, um, places like Gracia. If you look at the the streets and the 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 network of spaces in the old city and the new city, they never finish on a dead end. So what you find is that um, the Ramblas will link into a really important um, part of the new city that goes north. Passage to Gracia will link Gracia all the way down through into Barry Gothic. You don't, if you look all the way around the edge of the um, older kind of historic centre of Barcelona, you don't find any important streets that end on a dead end. So even though this grid looks really simple, it's been really carefully positioned so that it's really mixing between two separate two separate systems and doing it really, really carefully. And it's not, I think there's, um, it's it's almost like it's been really carefully grafted on. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes if you look at some urban extensions or master plans, it doesn't go through the same level of care as how the, how the two things really fit together mm. in as many possible ways that they could. So, when we when I first contacted you, uh, you sent me a link to a article you'd written in AD Architectural Design. Is architect Architectural Design? Yeah, that I think so. Yeah, it is Architectural <laughs> Design. I, yeah. it's, I, you call it I call it AD, and, and I, yeah, and then and then you think it might be Architectural Digest, but no, it's Architectural Design. Urban Futures Designing the Digitalized City, and you had written in chapter in there, um, and there's this quote. Um, there's this quote that I picked out from there, which is for, that you wrote, the role of planners, designers as solvers of complex spatial problems may not be um, to resolve a problem into a piece of architecture, but about making different use of what is already there. Mm. And there's sort of, so I wondered if you would talk about that a little bit, but also reflect on this idea that, that there seems to be an implication that there's almost an unarchitectural, uh, like where, question I often ask my students when we're talking about digital architecture or the digitization of architecture is like like you know you've got to be a designer but like where like what's left to you as a designer so space syntax model might seem I suppose to the outsider as lacking that designerly moment and I wondered if you could talk about it. yeah so I think so I think in part of this question there's a whole um, kind of theme about outcomes and outputs yeah and um to to, to explain that a bit more there's every now and then there are certain projects you work on where lots of things you've been kind of thinking about in the back of your head all kind of resolve themselves or get to a certain point where you understand things in a particular way or you you make a step in understanding them but there was probably i'm not sure when it was five six years ago uh we were working on one of the nhs healthy new towns and they were really interesting because that was planners, um, transport planners and public health yeah. all working together. They had a really clear objective, which was to make a healthy new town. Yeah. And there was really interesting workshops where everybody would be sitting around and there would be a question about what are the outcomes going to be? Yeah. And 
planning would say we've built 100 houses. Transport would say we've built a mile of cycle network. And public health would say that's not an outcome. That's the output of the development process. Mm. The outcome is that in 10 years time, people here are happier or healthier or whatever it is. And so then that that then raised a whole separate question, which is actually, do you know where people are healthy now? And do you know why they're healthy or unhealthy? And so we started to do some more work with uh, public health. And in the last, I don't know, more than five years, but less than 10 years, the models that we use, the analysis that we use has become more, more advanced. We don't just take the spatial network now, we can link it to land use, to public transport, and we can do lots and lots of different types of analyses. Um, one of the things we make is something called a walkability index. And it tells you if you walk through the actual street network, what's the mix of uses you can get to and how close are they? And we know that relates to mode share. But what is, what's in parallel started to come through and you see this coming through in the in the kind of mainstream press is stories about people moving on to moving into brand new houses but being completely car dependent. Mm -hmm. this, this, these are stories that are on BBC fairly regularly. Um, the the RTPI did a report I think back in at some point earlier this year, just looking at the amount of developments that were completely car dependent. In parallel, there's also um, kind of medical research that shows links between lifestyle and health outcomes and things like the way that people get to work and the risk of obesity and if you take the if you take public transport the risk of obesity is reduced if you take active transport it's even even lower and we know that that has a longer term impact not just on the individual but on society and if you kind of shortcut or work your way back through that chain of things that are happening underneath it there's a built environment and that makes a behavior possible or not and that's what these people are complaining about in the stories that are making it into the mainstream press, that they live somewhere that's completely car dependent. The really important thing is that we can be really precise about explaining the characteristics of the built environment that make it car dependent or not. So then the next way of thinking it through is that if you can start to see that there's a, a set of spatial characteristics that affect daily activities and longer term outcomes, then the question is really about how you, it's, it's almost what do you do with that spatial intelligence? And it might be that you physically resolve it into something different. It might be that you say, this area is car dependent, so we need to make a new connection so that people can, it reduces the distance and people can walk instead of drive. Or maybe you mix the land uses to reduce the need, or you do something physical. The alternative thing is that you say, okay, we can see there's this spatial set of problems but maybe you can't change the, the city itself or maybe there isn't enough money to do it or it's not um, politically viable to, to make a new connection or something. Then you can, then I think that's the creative bit is in thinking, what can you do within that set of characteristics? Is mm. it about delivering a service differently or is it about um, trying to get people to share a car? So at least there's fewer cars on the road or do you give people, I don't know, free gym memberships, or do you make sure that if there are elderly people in those places that services move around to them? Mm. I think there's something really interesting, which is uh, it might not be about always making a spatial solution to a spatial problem, but it might be a non-spatial solution to a spatial problem. It's, it's probably mitigating it rather than solving it. That's a really, it's sort of like, it's a, that's a really, fascinating possibility because i think i mean what, 
I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently in, re in relation to education, is that our model of education is entirely focused upon them designing uh, buildings to solve problems. It's like, it's like if you go to the doctor, expect to get a prescription because that's the tool they've got to fix the problem. And, you know, when I, I was at a, <clears throat> I was in Brussels uh, day before yesterday at a, at an inauguration of a, a research group on medical humanities. And um, this was exactly the basis of the, of the, the, the collaboration or the emerging collaboration is that that's what doctors do do. I mean, and for many reasons, um, they're pressured by time, they're pressured by pharmaceutical companies and, and, it's our logic now. You've got an illness, here's a pill. And, and, and weirdly enough, as a patient, it's kind of what you want. And so we've got this, uh, yeah, we've got this, got this crisis as well, I think a little bit in architecture where people come to us and say, we've got a, we've got a social problem, essentially, psychophysiological cultural problem. And we go, what you need <laughs> is a building. And actually what they need is uh, like a uh, analysis first and foremost mm -hmm. this kind mm -hmm. of bill hillier approach this space right 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 so th there's um i've been at a few conferences in the autumn as well one that was really interesting where there were it was about active travel mm -hmm. and there were behavior change consultants talking and mm -hmm. they talked about this model that they have of thinking about things called combi and so that's an acronym it's it's c is capability the o is opportunity and the m is motivation and if you break that down, the capability is if you're trying to get more people walking and cycling, can those people actually do that? Are they yeah. confident and competent? The motivation is, is why would they do it? It's, is there, is there a social value that they get from it or a financial incentive or why would people do something? The really important bit, the architectural piece is the opportunity. And that's the way the built environment makes something possible or not. Mm. And so I think, I know all, all of these models are just, um different lenses to look at problems with mm. but it's really helpful because you can start to think okay we can we can understand the environmental piece we can understand if the opportunity is there or not mm -hmm. and then it might be thinking about okay is it about um improving people's confidence to walk or cycle or is it something else mm. or is it about motivation um there's a really interesting i know the nhs was looking at lots of things around social prescribing exercises treatment and all of these things and working on a different project with public health, um, one of the things that people were talking about was behaviour change campaigns that when they, they work really effectively, if the doctor tells you to do something differently, if the doctor tells you that you need to do this, it's probably because something serious is going to happen and you need to, to do something to stop that from happening. Um, and I think that's that's something, there's a really interesting link to, to health. Um, the the thing where it links into kind of education, I think that's interesting is talking to public health um, workers and practitioners. They have a really good understanding of data, mm -hmm. what data shows, when to trust it, and this understanding that data is never one hundred percent perfect. Mm -hmm. It will be a snapshot in time. There might be some characteristics that are missing from it, but it's something that helps you kind of home in on something and understand. Um, it's not why something's happening, but it's telling you what's happening, mm -hmm. kind of where and kind of when. So, um, you're going. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. So, so I think there's there's something in here which is about what are the, 
you, you see data and analysis being used much more across a whole wide set of things which which you didn't see 10 or 15 years ago and you think of even just simple things like infographics and the way that data gets presented and there's really nice data visualizations yeah and i think there's a really key piece which is just around um being being really critically able to think about data and to position it what kind of data is it is it something that's about outcomes and daily activities or is it data about the systems that you can actually control as a designer mm. And then looking at the data itself, does it really represent what you think it does? Does it represent the individual house or the individual street? Or has something been, is it very difficult to collect data at that level? And so things have been grouped up into a bigger area. Does that area make sense or not? Does it actually map onto the, the urban grain underneath it in a, in a logical way? Or is it just a completely abstract representation? Yeah. So there's a whole load of critical thinking around kind of, I guess it's data literacy, really. It's quite interesting. Like the 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 idea that if you want people to do something good for their health the doctor has to say it um it's it's, it's like it's like they have a, they have they're trusted which you know gives them an enormous amount of power and it's not always been used for the good architects have, i think i don't know maybe maybe what maybe what space syntax does is it provides architects who have lost their some of their claims to authority their professional claim i mean it's part of a wider crisis of authority in in our culture but maybe what space syntax's model does is it provides this robust body of evidence that people can go it's okay he's not just telling us his modernist vision he's not just look orbuziering this situation and giving us and, you know, it's unfair to look abusive, but, you know, just giving us his his grand projet, this is solid stuff. Yeah, right, right. I think, it, yeah, it's a, it's it's um, building up that evidence base, isn't it, to be able yeah. to, to look at things objectively and consistently and um, quantitatively to some extent. Um, the other the other bit that's really interesting is this the thing about the doctor and doctors taking a Hippocratic oath. Yeah. I don't know if you saw there was a, a probably this is before COVID. I was going to say recently it was before COVID, but there was a there was a movement for data scientists to to have a Hippocratic oath. And that mm -hmm. was about the way that data was going to be used and shared and all of these sorts of things mm -hmm. and only only to be used for kind of positive social impact and those kind of questions, which is interesting because yeah. people are starting to realize how important it is and how many other decisions it goes on to influence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Um it's yeah it's kind of starting to define the architecture of our everyday lives like literally um and 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 but it, it has and it has this kind of um potentially democratic quality about it insofar as it's produced or it's facilitated by these little devices potentially that we carry in our pockets and if not you know a desktop computer or a laptop um so it kind of enables a co-development by citizens of this data it's not it's architecture it's architectural analysis that is being taken out of the hands of an exclusive minority and potentially democratized into the general public i mean is that the idea with space syntax i'm, I'm assuming bill hillier's work starts around the same time as a lot of architectural critique of modernism starts happening where <clears throat> you know Jan van Eyck and 
um, the participatory movement and the citizen-led movement and the Jane Jacobs kind of movements where you've got a, 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 a genuine sense that <clears throat> modernist project is not serving the well-being of the community and it's not serving the cultural forms of the community. And so, yeah, is space syntax's model um, directly intended as a mechanism for a sort of data-driven democratization of urban environments and architectural environments, or is it just does it just so happen to do that? Well, I think one of the one of the reasons the company actually spun out from university this is more than thirty years ago was that the 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 group was doing a lot of work with community groups mm-hmm. and they were testing things, finding that they weren't working how people wanted them to mm-hmm. or expected them to, and I think after after a developer had a scheme turned down the next time the developer had a project he came to the company to say last time we designed it this way you showed that it wasn't going to work the way that we expected and that was one of the reasons it didn't get approved and then he said so this time I want you to help me make it work and so it was somebody recognizing that um if you want to if you if you're trying to get things approved and to try to um you need to actually it's more than just saying that something's going to happen you need to be able to prove that what you're saying is going to really happen is going to is going to actually happen in real life and so it was yeah and do do, does does space syntax do sort of post-occupancy evaluation to see whether reality measures up so you're you're you sent Mm. me through um a nice short video which i'll link to in the podcast description of of um the city of in Kazakhstan, Al-Nazur, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's changed its name. It's Astana now. Astana. It, it changed its name a few times in the last couple of years or so. Well, Astana, we'll, we shall go with Astana for the moment. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, do you, do you, have you, when you do a project, do you spend time in the aftermath actually, yeah, POEing it? So we normally do, so there's, there's a kind of consistent methodology, which is to make the, carry out the analysis of the, of the existing place, mm-hmm. make your model, look at your data, and often to validate the model, we'll do a survey at that point in time at the beginning. So it might be on certain projects, we might um, um, do a survey to count people on streets and make sure that the model's actually predicting where people are walking at the moment. And if you validate your existing model against what's actually happening, then you can say, okay, it's at that point in the design process, you can't go forward in time and and count something, but you can model it. And so we validate it against existing condition, adapt that model to match a design, and then use that to forecast it. Um, We do, there's a handful of projects where we, been able to do it there are there are what tends to be really difficult is um often clients once something is built that's it it's built and it's finished mm-hmm. and to try to get the time to go back later yeah. to check it's working how you said it was going to work is really really difficult i think we've done it on a few really big projects um but often i, I was talking to somebody else at an event the other day and they were a lift supplier and what they were talking about the way they've adapted their technology and they now go through this process where they say okay we set everything up for you you open the building 
then we're going to spend six months tuning it for you. We'll look at when people are arriving. We'll look at how we can tweak things and get things to respond. And they were saying how it seems kind of crazy that people are prepared to spend so much money on this thing, but nobody's interested in looking at it once it's built, checking that it's really doing the thing that it's meant to do, making mm -hmm. any kind of final adjustments or, or tuning it to how it's being used day to day. People are not so interested in, and that's, it's a really, I think it, it kind of goes back to that thinking about outputs and outcomes mm -hmm. and being able to um, really question why, why have you done this? Why have you built this building? if you're then not going to keep improving it and keep tweaking it to to allow a better kind of result to happen so that's kind of a long way of saying we've done some post-occupancy studies but there's a lot of places it's really difficult to do because mm. it's it's just not on people's radar to think about yeah i th th this th it's another quote from your your essay where you write the right design cannot guarantee, and, and this pertains to what we've been talking about, cannot guarantee positive outcomes. It can at least make them possible. And this, like again, this idea of uh, an organic architecture as a kind of architecture more as in as an infrastructure which supports everyday life rather than the delineation of absolute modes of behavior and uses, and perhaps. Perhaps this then also touches back on that point you made at the beginning, which is about the American, the American grid city. Like, why does it work so well? Why does New York work so well? Um, is it to do with this generation of a framework? I mean, God knows how they did it. I guess intelligence or something. Um, yeah. So I just wondered if you could uh, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's. I think. Probably what it comes to is this um, is thinking about, I guess, kind of complexity. And a lot of the times, a, a really kind of good example of a complex system where it becomes biological is things like ecosystems that people are now really aware of and how there's a whole sequence of interconnected um, conditions and actors. And if you start to think about cities as being complex systems, there's the built environment. But that's only one of a number of different things. I mean, health is a really good example of an outcome and how it's the, it's it's really horrible because it's so complex, but it's a really good example. If you look at health outcomes, um, there's, there's a really nice systems map that was put together by the Government Office for Science probably about 10 years ago. And it's a, a systems map of everything that's contributing to obesity as an outcome. And they it's this it's one of these diagrams with lots and lots of different bubbles arrows going between the bubbles and feeding back, making these um, feedback loops. And at the center of the diagram, it has, it talks about a calorie imbalance. So that's the thing, you have too many calories, you don't burn them off, you become overweight and these sorts of things. What they've done is categorize all of the bubbles. And so some of the, some of the bubbles are to do with socioeconomic characteristics, how much, what your income is, what food you can afford some of it is about demography some of it is about what conditions you may inherit from your parents some of it is about the, the lifestyle you lead um, but a part of it is the built environment and so because you've got all of these different elements that are all interacting at the same time to affect the outcome you could design the perfect built environment that is really walkable but somebody they still might not walk. They might not walk to work. They might not walk to school. They might um, 
sit around and just play PlayStation or Xbox or something and have a terrible diet and they're going to be obese, however you design the environment. And so I think it might sound a bit negative to say that you can't guarantee a positive outcome, but what you can do is make sure that the conditions are in place for that positive outcome to happen. And there's also, you can do the opposite. You can make it almost impossible for people to walk to work. And that's this point that I mentioned earlier on about the stories that you see coming through in the mainstream press. That's a kind of a symptom of that happening is that Mm -hmm. you've designed out the potential for people to do that activity. Mm -hmm. So, um, so really it's about, you can't guarantee it, it something will definitely happen but you can make it possible and i think it's it's about understanding the position of the environment the built environment and the spatial relationships you create within that bigger more complex picture and i think the the thing with new york i guess the the question is what's the aspect that has been successful is it that it has got it's attracted huge amounts of capital to grow the way it has and that would probably not just be the way that the street grid's been defined and that the the blocks in between the streets have been separated into plots that have just happened to be, this is probably hasn't just happened. They've been the optimum size to be able to sell individual plots for people to build that you can easily combine them together. At the same time as that, they've had things like the zoning rules have changed at different times. So you can build more height in different places. There's probably been other kind of um, financial and economic conditions as well in the background and so it's it's this whole big picture of how everything is overlapping at the same time yeah i think that's the other the other point i think that i mentioned in that essay is something about um being aware of those other systems that are in place at the same time and that's what it's really trying to to get to is to say there might be wider economic or political conditions that mean something is is possible at a certain point in time or it might not be this kind of complexity that you're talking about is something that, judging by what you've said, space syntax is starting to deal with more and more. And space syntax's design model is intimately tied to technology. And as technology emerges, and this is just as I read it, so feel free to correct me, but as, as technology develops, improves, in advances in various ways, space syntax can deal with greater and greater complexity um, through advances in coding and I, I was I, I just think I I find that kind of idea really intriguing that there is this other architecture which isn't addressing technology in the design studio for example here computer technology is simply an advance on pen and paper it's just another way of doing pen and paper the same design processes are actually occurring but space syntax with its, its, its uh, symbiosis between technology and, and design, human design activity. It's a totally different idea, isn't it? So I don't know if you've heard this idea about, um, there was, I'm, I can't remember the person who put it together, but it, it came from um, some technology, I think it was from a technology um, website. There was, there's this process of digitalization Sorry, I'm going to get it in completely the wrong order. Digitization, digitalization, and then digital transformation. And digitization is this idea that you're just taking existing data and you're making it digital. Digitalization is then the tools to work with that data. And if you look at typically, I think a lot of things that are happening is that we're kind of in the stage of digitalization. So we've got the tools, but they're doing very similar things to, it's just that you're using a mouse to click on points instead of a, a pen or a pencil and a piece of paper 
the really interesting but i think is the digital transformation and that's the fundamental change of how you can rethink things in a different way and how there can be a completely different focus on what's actually happening and i think that's it would be really good to be able to say that's the we're kind of on the cusp i hope of being able to do that kind of transformation mm -hmm. and that and again that that leads to this kind of potential diffusion it's sort of like web 2.3.0 i suppose isn't it it's like um the potential for citizen engagement in the processes of not only the production but that i mean so mm -hmm. so so if space syntax don't get employed to go into cities like astana that they've developed but the citizens could cooperate in that in the post-occupancy phase that would be or in any planning I mean, because planning, planning is a subject that I come across time and time over in this podcast, people's frustrations with planning and the need to reform planning. If planning could be transformed by modes of coding that are characteristic of your model, of space syntax's model, be potentially wonderful. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's some really um, big questions in there about what it is your coding. Is it the... Is it about the way that buildings look, the materials and proportions, or is it about the actual underlying spatial characteristics? Yeah. I think there's a, there's um, and I would say that it's really important the underlying spatial characteristics because that's the thing which is so influential to what happens day to day. I think the other the other bit that's really interesting is thinking about um, I can use Astana as an example, yeah. but what we started to do was to say, okay, so we've got now tools that mean we can better explain how to put in place the built environment that enables certain outcomes. Mm -hmm. The really important question is what do you want those outcomes to be? Mm -hmm. And then the question is actually who sets those outcomes? Should it be best practice, international best practice? And why do we in London know anything better than somebody who lives in Astana about what the mm -hmm. outcome should be? There's something about um, local policy and there's about the people who live there as well. And I think what we did in Astana was we ran through this kind of process in a really simple way. You could say, why do you want to change the city? Which means you have to ask what you want it to be like. Then you can start to say, okay, if we know what we want it to be like, what do we know about the conditions that enable this, these outcomes to happen? Then you can start to analyze the city, see where the conditions are in place, see where you need to change it. That can effectively become your master plan that you can then test and make sure it's doing things the right way. Mm -hmm. But the way that we got into the question around, um, what the outcomes should be was by talking to stakeholders in the city. And that included uh, people in city departments, included people like the mayor, but it also included uh, residents and people who lived there. And often those are the people who are most invested in the city, people who've got houses there or raising families, and they'll probably be there longer than the, the kind of cycles of, of different local politicians or people who happen to be working in the city. So I think, there's a really interesting point, which is about engaging with people and engaging with them at the right time. And I think one of the issues around consultation that you see often is that you're asking people what they think about a scheme that's already been developed, mm -hmm. which is really difficult to have any say on, have any change on or impact on, and which will be described in a particular way. And I think there's, there's questions about should you have... Um, do you need experts? This was the big, obviously the big bre Brexit question. I think you really do need experts, but it's using experts in the right way and it's to be able to trust them and to, to show why you should trust them. And I think 
there i think the the process would be great if you got people involved really early on to say what should it be like mm-hmm. what do you want it to be like to live here now oh, sorry in 10 years time mm-hmm. and as you're developing ideas to keep playing them back and to be able to use technology to say well look, we know if you want somewhere to be livable you have to be able to walk to one of these things and we can show you um if we've done if we if we have this option more people can walk to more of these things and so it's it's better than option b because of here's the reason why and i think it's to to get those big objectives to get by in early on and to keep taking people through the process so that when you get to the point of saying what do you think everybody is bought in from the beginning and has seen things develop and has had a chance to shape it how do we um Given that this is coming, you know what I mean. This is this is sort of an inevitability. This data-driven stuff. It's it's as you say, we're on the cusp of it. Um, how do we how do we get students thinking about it? Like what? I suppose what in your education prepared you for it. But what would if you were to start again? What would you want to know? so that you could you could attack this with verve and vigor or is it do you think that rather obtuse educational system in designing pretty objects that we do with architecture students is that is that the right way of starting and then or, or, right. could, or could we do better so uh, yeah um <laughs> i think there's there was something really interesting which was when i started um we've got at, at space syntax we have people with lots of different professional backgrounds some people come from design and planning some people have an economics background some people come from geography so there's lots of people with different ways of thinking about things and um when i started when when i was working in conventional practice or in normal kind of everyday practice I think there was a difference between the kind of things that you do at the end of university and what you did as a day-to-day job. And I mean, you have a lot of freedom at university and you're doing interesting things and you can do kind of cutting edge things. And that might be different to what a real client wants on their, when they're paying for making a huge investment in a big project, they <laughs> probably don't want to do something crazy and risky. Um, and so I kind of questioned what I had really learned at university at that point. But I think one of the things that was really interesting was then starting a different job with people from different backgrounds and seeing how um, people who were really, really clever would really struggle to think about how to how to start to resolve something. Mm. And I think this is this is where some of the thinking came from around this spatial problem solving. And I think what you really learn through through architecture school is. being able to think about some of these complicated and complex interactions between things and how you start to resolve them. I think one of one of the things that Space Syntax does is it makes it really explicit how you start to resolve those and that there's there might be a hierarchy to the things that you consider and the order that mm-hmm. you consider them. And um, I remember, again, having to, having to sketch design something for a, a big project from scratch in the middle of nowhere that ended up nothing happened with it but um it was it was as an architect it was reasonably easy to start with something sketch something if it doesn't work sketch it again keep trying it and changing it and and uh, um 
tweaking it and adjusting it and keep revising it. <laughs> and somebody with a, say, a geography background might have done lots and lots of thinking through about processes that need to happen and why things are formed in a certain way. But to begin to actually resolve some of those problems or those questions, it was really interesting that the, the, the person I was working with was really struggling to do some of those things. Mm. And um, so I think in some ways, I think this is why I think it's about solving problems. And in some ways, it's maybe not being worried at the very beginning about doing the wrong thing or making a mistake. Because the you phrase know, that you use of trial and error, things. urbanism. So, yeah, so that's kind of interesting because I think, um, I know the, the thing I'm, I'm saying now is that architects or designers are not scared of putting something on paper as a way mm. to start and to keep tweaking it and changing it. Mm -hmm. What I think becomes really interesting was um, when we got the work in Astana, we won that through a design competition and we won it by um, almost kind of simulating the growth of a city, mm -hmm. which means you have to work out what are the systems that you design. And we were boiling it down from looking at places like unplanned settlements and really, really clever, complicated cities that people had thought of as essentially big buildings that had ended up being very difficult to deliver in real life. We got to the point of saying you need to design the fewest number of the most important elements. And that was this, this spatial network. So the network of streets and, and pedestrian routes, the urban blocks, and you need to subdivide those blocks into plots. And based on the way that your network that you've designed works, you can allocate densities and typologies and land use mixes based on what happens in cities and, and cities that lead to certain outcomes. So at the end of it, you end up with, on one hand, it's quite a simple master plan because it's just defining plots and it's giving typologies to each plot and it's giving you center lines. And the question is, how is that different to the, the commissioner's plan of Manhattan or Serda's grid? Um, and I think there's a really interesting comparison, which was, I mean, when we, when we made it, we analyzed cities. We then scripted um, something to grow city a city bringing into it these characteristics from, from cities that we could see that work well in other places. And the thing I was saying a long time ago now about this kind of foreground network of very well-connected um, streets and a background network, which is a bit quieter and less well-connected. And um, I mean, there's a really interesting parallel that I, I saw a quote that was from, it was from a motor racing team where they were talking about in the eighties, they used to just, design something try it see if it made a car quicker if it worked then that was great if it didn't then they had to start again and um it was talking about how they'd adapted or they'd adopted all of these processes around cfd and computer modeling and simulation and that meant that they would only make the things that they knew really worked and they were saying this the old approach was trial and error and now we've got something which is about um it's much more intelligent and it leads to much better outcomes. And I think if you look back, this is probably linked tying into this digital transformation idea as well. It means that you can start to kind of move away from trial and error urbanism. So it means that you can stop building a housing estate in the middle of nowhere and then discovering that people are car dependent once they start living there. And you can start to use the spatial intelligence before that to, to avoid certain locations or to try to mitigate something. So I think that's the... That's the kind of the counter, I think. So I think looping it back to the, this point about education, I think um, to be able to 
think things through and not be afraid to start with something and to test that thing it's the process of testing it before you get to actually completing it that becomes really important i think brilliant i think that's a perfect point to stop on um thank you very very much ed i've really enjoyed speaking with you thank you you too fascinating challenging and lit Thank you to Ed for taking the time to speak with me and for guiding the discussion. Please see the podcast description for details of Space Syntax and a link to a short BBC Tomorrow's Worlds video from 1993 featuring Bill Hillier using Space Syntax to analyse the North Peckham estate. Of course, there's links also to Ed's social professional profile. And there's so much online about Space Syntax, so have a dig around. And if you like this, subscribe and share the episode. Thanks for listening.